Well, good morning, all. One minute ahead of time. So I'm going to make a, a quick announcement, if I might, so that Randy will have the full amount of time for his presentation. Uh, and the reminder, a very simple thing, is that this afternoon we have scheduled, much to our regret, so-called free time. I had to be restrained by my colleagues. I said, but we could have sessions and so on. But they said, no, that free time. Now, there are visitor guides available if you'd like to explore uh, downtown San Diego. It's a very lovely town. If you haven't been there before, that's worth a visit. Got to make sure you're going to be back on time for the uh, later event, so do check your schedule. But if you'd like to explore San Diego downtown, it is really very beautiful, very nice, and very genteel. Otherwise, there's golfing and swimming pools and nap time and other things to occupy your time as well. And now, Randy Barnett. I thought he was going to go on longer than that. Well, good morning, everyone. It's my, it's my turn to be first up. Um, as you know, as I announced uh, at the beginning, I've flipped the topic, so we are not going to be talking about the modesty of radical libertarianism this morning. We'll be talking about that tomorrow afternoon. Instead, the talk I'm going to talk about, what I'm going to talk about this morning is the consent of the governed. It's a continuation of uh, the discussion of the Declaration of Independence of the second half uh, of the sentence I started talking about yesterday. Um, the Declaration, as, as, as we talked about yesterday, the Declaration of Independence famously declared that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it then affirmed that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This last sentence has proven to be problematic for reasons I, I did suggest yesterday and I will elaborate on now. If the consent of the governed means the consent of a majority of the people, then the consent of the governed can be used to violate the unalienable rights for which governments are instituted among men. The situation is still worse. If, consent of a, if the consent of a majority of a small body of men and women called legislators and representatives is taken to be the same as the consent of the people themselves. The problem with the prevailing collective conception of popular sovereignty then is that it invites this majoritarian reading or this majoritarian interpretation of the consent of the governed. But then the question arises, well, how else is the will of we the people to be identified? In my book, Restoring the Lost Constitution, I address this tension by identifying what I called there the fiction of we the people. And by this, what I meant was, uh, it is a fiction to claim that laws passed pursuant to the Constitution are binding in conscience on the individual because we the people have consented to be so bound, that that is a fiction, and it's actually a pernicious fiction. The basic problem with this claim is the fundamental proposition that no one can, by their own consent, bind someone else. For example, two people 
cannot by their consent oblige a third person to part with her money or her bodily integrity. For a person to be bound by their consent, he or she must be the ones consenting. That's how consent works. Yet we are told that because some subset of a group of people residing in North America a couple hundred years ago can be said to have consented to be bound by a government formed by the Constitution of the United States, then this consent will bind dissenters back then and successive generations, including us. In my book, I explain why each of the arguments that are commonly offered on behalf of this claim fails. And I'm not gonna go through what all of them are because that's not what this lecture is about, as you'll see shortly. And, and because each one of them fails, it is fair to read my book as rejecting what may be called either popular sovereignty or the consent of the governed as the basis for the legitimacy of the Constitution. I think it's quite fair to read the early chapters of my book and think that I am rejecting popular sovereignty. However, since the book appeared some nine years ago, I came to be aware of another more individualistic conception of popular sovereignty that happened to have existed also at the time of the founding, but it is generally neglected, and so neglected that I had actually never heard of it. I mean, it's not doesn't mean because I haven't heard of it, it, you know, nobody's heard of it, but you know, I'm, a, I'm somewhat clued into these things. I read a lot. <laughs> I've been talking about these things for many years. If I hadn't actually heard of it, it's probably not that well known. Um, now, this conception of popular sovereignty does not rest on the collective consent of a body of the people, which in practice, as I'm telling you, means a consent of a majority of those who are allowed to vote, but is instead based on the individual sovereignty of each person. The individual sovereignty of each person. This individualistic conception of popular sovereignty was most strikingly presented in the first great constitutional case. It was the first big case decided by the Supreme Court. It's the case called Chisholm versus Georgia. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 1793, just four years after the enactment of the Constitution. Now, there's a re now I assume, I mean, how many people have heard of Chisholm versus Georgia? Raise your hand. More than I would have expected. Um, it's, it's not taught in first year law school. It's not taught in your constitutional law classes. And it's taught, if it's taught anywhere, it's taught in federal courts class. Uh, and then it's taught, the only reason it's taught is because it's taught as the reason why the 11th Amendment was passed to reverse Chisholm versus Georgia. So one reason why it's not taught is because it's thought to have been reversed and repudiated. Therefore, you'd only learn about it to know what the 11th Amendment is about. You only study the 11th Amendment, which I'm not gonna get into at the moment. You only study the 11th Amendment in federal courts class, and therefore, you don't really need to know about Chisholm. All right, which is kind of why I didn't know about Chisholm. So in this lecture, I'm gonna explain how this individualistic conception of popular sovereignty can resolve the apparent tension between unalienable natural rights and the consent of the governed and why it justifies, in the end, judicial engagement in the protection of these rights. And I also should probably mention that um, I'm writing a book about this now. The name of the book is, uh, the working title of the book is Our Republican Constitution, which is the title, I think, of this lecture. Um, and what, really, the way it's working out is what I, the lecture I gave yesterday is really based on chapters one and two of this new book, and today's lecture is based on chapters three and four of this new book, and I've been working on it here while I'm here. I've gotten quite a lot done on the book. So you're kind of getting 
whereas last, the last lecture was based a lot on my early work, uh, The Structure of Liberty, what you're now getting is somewhat of a preview in this lecture, a preview of my next book. And I don't know when this will ever be done, but hopefully sooner rather than later. And I'm hoping that it will be a short book that's accessible to the general public. I'm writing it that way, rather than a, a longer, more detailed scholarly book. All right, so now let's talk about Chisholm versus George. I'm going to tell you about this case. In Chisholm, the, court, the Supreme Court, by a vote of four to one, there were five justices on the court at the time. There were, that's, that's how big the Supreme Court was. Rejected George's assertion of sovereign immunity as a defense against a suit in federal court uh, for breach of contract brought against it by an citizen, individual citizen of another state. So what really happened in Chisholm was there was some revolutionary war debts that were, in, that were incurred by the, the, the uh, government of Georgia during the Revolutionary War. It was a, basically a contract to buy some stuff that they didn't pay for, allegedly. And so uh, eventually this debt ended up in the hands of a citizen um, from uh, South Carolina, and, and he sued in federal court to enforce this contract. He sued the state of Georgia for breach of contract, and it looked like under Article Three of the Constitution, um, and I thought this was in my notes, but apparently it's not. I thought I had put the, um, I might not have even printed out the right version of this talk because I thought I had the, um, the quote of Article Three in the, uh, in the talk itself, but I'm just gonna have to tell you what it says. Article Three basically says that, a, that, that federal courts have jurisdiction over disputes between a, between a state and a citizen of another state. So it really looked like this guy, Chisholm, from South Carolina could sue the state of Georgia. And so he went to federal court, and, and the state of Georgia replied, um, that no, you can't, you can't sue us in federal court because we're sovereign and as a result of the, and as, under principles of sovereignty, uh, we have what's called sovereign immunity and we cannot be sued unless we, con unless we consent to the suit. And in fact, principle of sovereign immunity uh, is a principle of law that still exists today. It's why uh, criminal prosecutors, for example, have immunity, judges have immunities from things. Um, and in fact, you can only sue the, the federal government because there's a statute that gives you the right to do it. It's, they've consented to you being su to suing them because uh, they also claim sovereign immunity. So Chisholm, so Georgia claims sovereign immunity and they refused, they said because the Supreme Court has no jurisdiction over us, they didn't even show up in federal court to defend it. And that is one of the ways you do contest jurisdiction by not showing up. Uh, and so they weren't there to defend themselves. The court had to appoint counsel to, to represent their side. Um, and they heard argument. And so the question was, do they have jurisdiction to hear a claim brought against the state of Georgia, a sovereign state supposedly, by the citizen of South Carolina? Um, there's a lot more to the story than that, but um, at this point, that's enough of, for you to understand what it is the Supreme Court's trying to decide. It looks, the text of the Constitution looks reasonably clear that, that, that uh, he does have that right uh, to sue, and they do have jurisdiction, but Georgia says, oh, no, no, there's this principle called sovereign immunity, and that you need to read the text of the Constitution in light of that principle, and therefore, we cannot be sued. Well, by a vote of four to one, the court rejected Georgia's assertion of sovereign immunity, uh, oh, and by the way, one last thing, I'm sorry. What the 11th Amendment then is passed to do, after, this, after the Supreme Court rejects Georgia's claim of sovereign immunity, the, the 11th Amendment is passed to say that citizens of a, uh, one state cannot sue a state in federal court. That's all it says. So it basically eliminates this right to sue that Article Three seemingly uh, uh, allowed, and the 11th Amendment basically eliminates that uh, in response to the decision of Chisholm. So that's, that's the relationship between Chisholm and the 11th Amendment. So in Chisholm, what the court says is that um, uh, they reject this claim and say, no, a citizen can sue a state. The majority concluded instead 
that members of the public could sue state governments because sovereignty rests with the people rather than with state governments. Now you can kind of see why I'm interested. The justices in Chisholm affirm that in this America, the states are not kings and their legislatures are not the supreme successors to the crown. And this idea of sovereign immunity is an idea that dates back to the crown. You couldn't sue the king without the king's permission. In Chisholm, because each, in Chisholm, each justice delivered their opinion seriatim. It was a different practice than we have now. The idea, what we have now is the, the court issues opinions of the court. Then there's concurring opinions, then there's dissenting opinions, but there's an opinion of the court. This was a practice that was innovated by our third Chief Justice, John Marshall. Prior to that, they used a different practice, the English practice, and that is every justice would vote, and then they had the opportunity, if they wished, to explain their vote by giving their opinion as to why they voted that way. So this is what was known as seriatim opinions. They would each go down and they'd each say why they voted the way they did. And you got to understand what the reasoning of each judge was, but all that really came out of the case was a vote. Um, whereas now, what comes out of the case is this opinion of the court, and the opinion of the court becomes of greater importance, which is why Marshall invented the idea, and we start studying the wording of the opinions of the court as though they are law, and, and subsequent courts have to follow the, the, what the previous court said, like the words of the opinion are law. That only starts with John Marshall. Prior to that, that's not the way the Supreme Court practiced. So they had seriatim opinions. So we know what the individual justices thought in Chisholm because they told us what they thought. We have five opinions, um, and I'm going to focus on two. Uh, the opinions by Justice James Wilson and the opinion by Chief Justice John Jay. The opinion, J James, James Wilson was a crucial member of the founding generation. How many people have heard of James Wilson? Uh, less the people than raised their hand out of Chisholm versus Georgia, kind of surprisingly. Now, he is our most forgotten framer. Most, one of the most influential framers, uh, a big mover and shaker at the time of the founding. The American people have generally forgotten about him. There's reasons for that. There's personal reasons for that. I, I can tell you about later if you ask me in the Q&A. Um, but he was a member of the uh, Constitution. He was a member of the uh, co previous Congress, the Continental Congress. Then he was a member of the Constitutional Convention. He was one of the principal people who wrote the, the actual words of the Constitution. In, with, in the Constitutional Convention, he was like the senior famous accomplished lawyer, James Madison was from, from Pennsylvania, a big state. James Madison was the junior, up-and-coming, kind of smart guy, but quiet, very, very quiet guy from Virginia that nobody had really heard of, and the two of them worked in tandem at the Constitutional Convention. And Wilson's much more of a nationalist than Madison turned out to be, although he started out as a nationalist, and so it's one of the reasons why like, folks like us don't necessarily care for Wilson that much. Um, uh, because he's on the more nationalist side of things. But he was very thoughtful. He was the first professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania. He gave lectures on jurisprudence there that had been published. They're very interesting. He was a very articulate natural rights defender. Um, and he was a Scot. He wasn't an Englishman. And so uh, it's another reason why he kind of was on the outs with uh, the founding generation, because he had a more Scottish background. At any rate, he's a member. Uh, and he finally, he was a member of the Committee of Detail, which is the committee that first produced the first draft of the Constitution at the convention, uh, that they, so they had a working written document to work with, not just the principles. All right, so I'm gonna start with his opinion. Here's what he says about sovereignty. It's a, it's a very long opinion, and I'm just gonna give you some of the highlights of it, the kind I think, the parts I think are most important. He begins his opinion by stressing that the Constitution nowhere uses the term sovereignty. 
This may come as a surprise to you. The term sovereignty doesn't appear in the Constitution, he says. And he would know, because he was one of the people responsible for choosing the words that went into the Constitution, and it wasn't there. He said, quote, to the Constitution of the United States, the term sovereign is totally unknown. There was only one place in the Constitution where it could have been used with propriety, he observed, referring to the preamble, they might have used it there, that, but, quote, even in that place, it would not, perhaps, have comported with the delicacy of those who ordained and established that Constitution. They might have announced themselves sovereign people of the United States, but serenely conscious of that fact, they avoided the ostentatious declaration, unquote. All right, that's kind of interesting. Sovereignty doesn't appear, not even in the preamble. Wilson contended, he went through various meanings of the term sovereign, what it, might, what it has meant, what Blackstone thought it meant. He went, it was a very scholarly, very long opinion, probably too long. One of the reasons why it, got, it, it gets over, uh, overlooked is because it's too long to read. Um, but he content, in his opinion, he said, if the term sovereign is to be used at all, it should refer to the individual person. Quote, laws derived from the pure source of equality and justice must be founded on the consent of those whose obedience they require. The sovereign, when traced to this source, must be found in the man. The sovereign, when traced to this source, must be found in the man, meaning the individual person. In other words, obedience must rest on the consent of the individual person who is asked to obey the law. Wilson believed that the only reason, quote, the only reason, quote, quote, a free man is bound by human laws is that he binds himself, unquote. For Wilson, states were nothing more than an aggregate of free, uh, an aggregate of free sovereign individuals. Quote, if one free man, an original sovereign, if one free man, an original sovereign, he said, may bind himself to the jurisdiction of the court, in other words, he can go to court, Quote, why may not an aggregate of free men, a collection of original sovereigns, do this likewise? If the dignity of each singly is undiminished, the dignity of all jointly must be unimpaired, unquote. So he basically says, look, if one free man, an original sovereign, can, be, can go to court, can, can, go, can, go, can consent to the jurisdiction of a court and go to court, why can't these people over here, which are nothing more than a collection of individual sovereigns, why can't they go to court? If his dignity is not undermined, why is their dignity undermined? It's very powerful. Wilson was not alone in locating sovereignty in the individual person. In his opinion in Chisholm, Chief Justice John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States, who along with Madison, he was a very, very lead, uh, 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 leading attorney in the United States. Uh, uh, he, was, uh, uh, he was a crucial diplomat. Uh, during the uh, uh, Revolutionary War and afterwards during the original period of the Articles of Confederation. Um, he was one of the original authors of the Federalist Papers. There was originally, it was Jay, Hamilton, and, and uh, Madison, but Jay drops out after doing a few. He doesn't do very many. Uh, he becomes our first Chief Justice of the United States. He's appointed because he's like one of the leading, he's like the leading light in the country. Um, in his opinion, he refers tellingly to, quote, the joint and equal sovereigns of this country. The joint and equal sovereigns of this country. Jay affirmed the quote, great and glorious principle that the people are the sovereign of this country 
And consequently, that fellow citizens and joint sovereigns cannot be degraded by appearing with each other in their own courts to have their controversies determined. Fellow citizens and joint sovereigns. And in this discussion, he expressly says he's talking about, quote, that popular sovereignty in which every citizen partakes. So he's deliberately, expressly talking about popular sovereignty. Now, neither Wilson nor Jay's individualistic conception of popular sovereignty conforms with the modern notion of popular sovereignty as a purely collective concept. Their opinions in Chisholm represent the radical, yet fundamental idea that if anyone is sovereign, it is we the people, as individuals, in contrast with the modern view that locates popular sovereignty in Congress or state legislatures, which supposedly represent the will of the people, or in a majority of the citizenry, rather than residing sovereignty in the citizenry as a whole. Now, I don't want to claim that the collective vision of popular sovereignty did not exist at the time of the founding, or that the individualistic conception of popular sovereignty was the prevailing one. I don't know that that's true. I mean, that would require a lot of historical inquiry that I have not engaged in. I'm also not talking about what the original meaning of the Constitution is either. I'm just identifying this as an alternative conception. I actually think that the collective conception of popular sovereignty pre-existed this individualistic conception because I think it's what animated the views of government that took place between the Revolution and the Constitution when we were operating under the Articles of Confederation and all of the states were very, very, very democratic. They were, they were basically one branch governments dominated by the legislature, elected annually, and that's what their theory of what, and so it, it wouldn't surprise me that that was a more collective majoritarian view of popular sovereignty that pre-exists this one. But remember, we had a constitution that changed things, written by people who were dissatisfied with what had been going on with this previous democratic approach. And they recast the conception of popular sovereignty, I believe, at least some of them did, this way. Chisholm versus Georgia is evidence that the view that I am now about, to, that I have been talking about and will continue to talk about, existed at the time of the founding and it was held by amongst our leading constitutional authorities at that time. That's all I'm claiming. How then do we reconcile the individual conception of popular sovereignty based on the consent in each and every person with the fact that such unanimous consent to governance is never expressly solicited, it's never asked for, and it would be impossible to obtain if you did ask for it. As it happens, there was an answer to this question also that can also be found at the time of the founding and long before. It happens to be an answer that uh, is again overlooked, it's much overlooked, and it was one I myself overlooked until recent years, and I'm, um, um, I'm not going to tell you exactly how, I, I mean, I'm not going to take the time now to tell you how I came about it, discovering it in the last few years, um, but I'm going to tell you what it is. All right, so with, if we start with the proposition that it is the people as individuals who are sovereign and that they retain their pre-existing rights unless they are expressly delegated to their agents, then in the absence of such an express delegation, in the absence of their express consent, we must ask what each person could be presumed to have consented to. If we don't ask, and there's never expressed anything, then all we can ask is, well, what, ha what, we what can we presume they have consented to? In his 1845 book, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, and I have to say, that's how I first came across the idea. In this 1845 book by Lysander Spooner, one of my heroes, called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, he contended in this book 
that since the consent of the governed exists, quote, only in theory, and he called it in elsewhere theoretical consent, because, the, because it means it wasn't actual, you didn't actually get in and ask the person, they didn't say anything. Because the consent of the governed, he said, exists only in theory, the people cannot be presumed to have given up their pre-existing rights. Justice, he wrote, quote, is evidently the only principle that everyone can be presumed to agree to in the formation of government, unquote. So if you don't ask the person, all you can presume is that they've agreed to have their rights protected. You can't presume they've, they've consented to anything else. But Spooner, that's the first place I saw it, but then once I saw it there, I started seeing it other places that I didn't even, places I'd read, but I'd never noticed. So, for example, John Locke in his second treatise in government, this is from an excerpt that was in my casebook, and it was when I was editing my casebook and teaching from the casebook, and having read Spooner, I noticed Locke's talking like this, and I never noticed it before. Um, he's, he, and, and there are philosophers who do dwell on this, but I'm not gonna get into that. There was reasons why I didn't wanna uh, pay attention to that. But anyway, here's what, what Locke says. Men, when they enter into society, give up the equality, liberty, and executive power they had in the state of nature. And they give that up into the hands of the society to be so far disposed of by the legislative as the good of the society shall require. So he's talking about the legislative power. That's what happens. You leave the state of nature, you give up power that you had in the state of nature to the legislature, to the legislative. He then considers the scope of the legislative power, which is also known as the police power, that is given up. And he employs an analysis that's strikingly similar to Spooner's, although I think causation runs the other way. I think Spooner read Locke. I don't think Locke read Spooner. All right, so here's what Locke, here's what, uh, Locke says. Yet it being with, the intention, with an intention that everyone the better to preserve himself, his liberty and property, for no rational creature can be supposed to change his condition with an intention to be worse, the power of the society or legislative constituted by them can never be supposed to extend farther than the common good, but is obliged to secure everyone's property by providing against those three defects that made the state of nature so unsafe and uneasy. Now, I'm gonna come back to those three defects later and, and rely on that part of, his, of this quote and elaborate on that. But here I just want you to notice, Locke is asking what a rational creature can be supposed to have consented to in the absence of their explicit consent when leaving the state of nature. And the individual can only be supposed to have consented to the common good which consists of the protection of each person's life and liberty. The idea of supposed or presumed consent appears again um, in an opinion by Attorney General Edmund Randolph, he was our first Attorney General, again, one of the leading lawyers of the, uh, of the period. The first Attorney General, what happened was um, Hamilton's pushing a national bank um, in Congress. The Federalists are pushing the national bank in Congress. Washington asks his cabinet for their legal opinions on whether it's constitutional. Jefferson gives his opinion, um, and also, as he's a then Secretary of State, and Madison gives his, and, and then uh, Madison's in Congress opposing it. He's not in the administration. And, uh, and then Randolph gives his opinion. He's the Attorney General of the United States. Coincidentally, Randolph was the person that represented Chisholm later in Chisholm versus Georgia. Uh, but not as Attorney General, but in his private capacity as an attorney. So he was both Attorney General, but he represented clients, and he represented Chisholm, arguing against Georgia's claim of sovereign immunity. Maybe not a coincidence when you hear what his opinion is about the, the constitutionality of a national bank. He says, 
in his opinion, and so the issue is, does Congress have the power to establish a national bank? Well, obviously, there's no express power. So the question is, is it an implied power? And that is what ultimately it's considered to be today. It's an implied power. So is it an implied power? He has to answer that question. Is it implied? He said, um, uh, a legislature governed by a written constitution without an expressed demarcation of powers may perhaps be presumed to be left at large as to all authority, uh, which does not affect, but, I'm um, sorry, by, by uh, I skipped a line here. Um, I'll start over again. A legislature governed by a written constitution without an express demarcation of powers may perhaps be presumed to be left at large as to all authority which is communicable by the people. Provided, he said, that such authority, quote, does not affect any of those paramount rights which a free people cannot be supposed to confide even in their representatives. You see, it's the same move. This cannot be supposed move. Once again, given the sovereignty of the people as individuals, the people cannot be presumed or supposed to have confided in their legislature any power to violate their fundamental rights. But finally, the, perhaps the most striking use of this notion of the presumed or supposed consent of the governed appears in the 1798 Supreme Court case of Calder versus Bull, which I read to you yesterday. Uh, Calder's become known for its class between Justice Chase uh, who asserted the great first principles of the social compact that restrict the rightful exercise of legislative power. That's why I read it to you yesterday. And that clash between him and James Iredale, who seemed to assert a far more unlimited conception of legislative power. But generally overlooked, in addition to that, which I read yesterday, is that like Locke, Randolph, and Spooner, Chase also employs the notion of supposed consent. He begins by providing examples of laws that violate these great first principles, such as the law that punished a citizen for an innocent action, or a law that destroys or impairs the lawful private contracts of citizens, or a law that makes a man a judge in his own case, or a law that takes property from A and gives it to B. These are all laws that he says are not really laws. They, they, are, they are violate the first principles. He then contends that the enactment of such laws is beyond the legislative power because, quote, it is against all reason and justice for a people to entrust a legislature with such powers, and therefore, it cannot be presumed that they have done it. The same move. It's the same move. Now, when discussing presumed or supposed consent, the issue is the relevant default rule. When the legislature is exercising an implied power rather than those that were expressly delegated. For Chase and Calder, a legisla uh, the legislature only has those powers that are expressly delegated, together with those implied powers that are not fundamentally unjust, ju such as punishing a person for acts that were, not, were, that were legal when he did it. Like Locke, Chase asked whether in the absence of a clear statement in a written constitution, a free and rational person would have consented to that. Now, to be sure, natural justice or natural rights lurks in the background of all these considerations of presumed consent, but only as a way of interpreting the scope of legislative power in the absence of express consent. When combined with the concept of individual popular sovereignty, all these invocations of presumed, supposed, or implied consent cast an, um, uh, the issue of popular sovereignty and the consent of the governed in a new light that supports the approach to constitutional legitimacy that I did defend in restoring the lost constitution. And so we can separate the steps of this argument as follows. First, sovereignty rests not in the government,
but in the people considered themselves considered as individuals. Second, to be legitimate, government must receive the consent of all these sovereign individuals. Third, in the absence of the express consent of each person, however, the only consent that can be attributed to everyone is a consent only to such powers that do not violate the retained the retain fundamental rights. Fourth, the effective protection of these rights retained by the people is what assures that the government is actually conforming to the consent, the only consent it can claim, which is presumed consent, and that it claims as the source of its authority. Fifth and finally, only if such protection is effective will its commands, the commands of such a government, be binding in conscience on the individual. So, having discussed individual popular sovereignty and presumed consent, let me now turn to the final step in my analysis for this morning. Judicial engagement and the due process of law. Let's go back to that quote from John Locke I just read to you a moment ago. I'll read it to you again. He said, the power of the society or legislative constituted by them, so now we're talking about the power of the legislature, can never be supposed to extend farther than the common good, but is obliged to secure everyone's property by providing against these three defects that made the state of nature so unsafe and uneasy. So what are those three defects? I'm just going to talk about one of those. You already heard about one of them from Rob, the, ability, the inability to, to physically protect yourself. That's actually the fact that that's why you need an exec, you have to give the, delegate the executive power of protection to the government. That's the one he told you about. But there's another one, and here's what Locke said about this one. In the state of nature, he said, there wants a known and indifferent judge with authority to determine all differences according to the established law. For everyone in the state of, uh, in the state of nature, being both judge and executioner of the law of nature, men being partial to themselves, passion and revenge is very apt to carry them too far and with too much heat in their own cases. This comes, this, this, the principle derived from this is you cannot be the judge in your own case. In the state of nature, that's the only thing that can happen is you're the judge in your own case. And people go too far, and that's bad. No one who views popular sovereignty as residing in the, in the individual would confuse the people themselves from their representatives in the legislature. They're obviously not the same thing who are but themselves men and women who may use their power improperly to restrict the liberties of the people. As Madison explained in Federalist 10, no man is allowed to be the judge in his own cause because his interests would certainly bias his judgment and not improbably corrupt his integrity. With equal, nay, with greater reason, a body of men are unfit to be both judges and parties at the same time. Yet what are many of the most important acts of legislation? But so many judicial determinations, not indeed concerning the rights of single persons, but concerning the rights of large bodies of people. This is Madison. According to Locke, the answer to this defect in the state of nature is the creation of an independent, neutral judiciary. Or as Madison put it in his speech when he proposed uh, the Bill of Rights, he called them as an independent, he said, independent tribunals of justice will be an impenetrable bulwark against every assumption of power in the legislative or executive. They will be naturally led to resist the, every encroachment upon rights expressly stipulated for in the Constitution by a declaration of rights. He was defending why, you, why a Bill of Rights would do good. Now, among these express guarantees in the Constitution is the Fifth Amendment, 
that says, no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, unquote. And this due process of law includes an assessment by an independent judiciary that a particular statute was indeed a law within the powers that a people may be presumed or supposed to have delegated to their agents. That's the argument. How does it work? How would it work? How does this idea work where judges get to examine whether a particular act of legislation is within the power that the people can be supposed to have delegated when they didn't do it expressly? To get a sense of how this approach used to work in practice, we don't have to go back to the Supreme Court's due process analysis in the controversial case of, say, Lochner v. New York. How many people have heard of the case of Lochner v. New York? Well, those, I'm not going to tell those of you who haven't uh, of what it is, but it's a case that's considered to be uh, a terrible case. Uh, when you're taught in constitutional law, you're taught this is how you're not supposed to do things. Uh, I happen to think it's one of the best cases ever decided by the Supreme Court. It's when the Supreme Court defended the liberty of contract against an unreasonable restriction that was imposed by the state of New York. But I'm not going to rely on Lochner. What I'm going to rely on is a 1938 case, which is a hallowed and much respected case. It's a case called U.S. v. Caroline Products. U.S. v. Caroline Products was a case involving the sale of what was called filled milk. Filled milk was made by, taking, by skimming off the milk fat of, of, of whole milk, selling that separately, because you can make butter and other things out of it, and then taking what was called the skim milk, what's left over, and adding vegetable oil to it. In the original formulation, it was coconut oil, um, uh, and creating a product that tasted like whole milk, even though it, did, it was no longer whole milk. And by the process of selling off the butter fat and keeping the skim milk and adding this, it was cheaper to produce it, and it sold for less than whole milk did. So it was in, in, you know, in a down market, so to speak, in the middle of a depression. It was an a less expensive alternative to, full, to whole milk. Well, guess who didn't like this? Dairy farmers. They didn't like it. Um, and so, because it competed with their sale of whole milk, and they, they, they lobbied for legislation restricting that. They also had a lot of laws restricting the sale of oleomargarine. They were, it was banned in many places because it competed with butter, the sale of butter. Um, I actually remember when I was a kid driving up to Wisconsin because the oleo margarine, Wisconsin Dairy State, was, oleo uh, margarine was still illegal in Wisconsin. And at the border of Illinois and Wisconsin, there were big signs like you were in Nevada or Las Vegas flashing out, oleo, oleo, oleo. And as a little kid, I'm thinking, what the hell is oleo? You know, it's like, oh, that's margarine. Oh, okay. So the people from Wisconsin had to go cross the state lines to buy their margarine because it was illegal in Wisconsin, right? Uh, what they, they allowed you to sell it. You know, margarine, by the way, if you just look at it, it's a gelatinous, clear stuff you'd never want to eat. So they allowed you to sell margarine that way, and then the yellow dye that you mix with it, they would let you buy it that way, and you had to mix it yourself. <laughs> that was just a way of not getting you to buy it, right? So they had to come across and buy, uh, you know, I can't believe it's not butter or whatever it is they were buying. <laughs> So this is all this public interest legislation that's there to protect us, right? Uh, it's actually there to protect farmers. Well, there was a case about this. Uh, there was the, uh, the constitutionality of the ban on field milk was challenged. It went to the Supreme Court, and in this 1938 case, the Supreme Court upheld a federal ban on the sale of field milk. The product was called Milnut. It was, it was produced by the Caroline Products Company, and the, at the Supreme Court affirmed that ban. They said it was constitutional. Um, and they did it by means of uh, what they call the presumption of constitutionality, in which they presume that laws are constitutional unless uh, shown uh, to be otherwise. And Caroline Products is considered to be a, a really important case because of uh, a, a footnote in Caroline Products. It's called footnote four. 
And the reason why footnote four becomes so important is because in the text of the Constitution, in the text of the opinion, it affirms the presumption of constitutionality. We're going to uphold this law because we presume it's constitutional. In the footnote, it describes three circumstances in which it might not presume laws are constitutional. And that became the basis of what later became the fundamental rights revolution, because it was on the basis of the theory of that footnote. The first paragraph said, you know, rights expressly stipulated for in the Constitution, express prohibitions in the Constitution, we might not have a presumption of constitutionality, thereby privileging the written rights and disparaging the unenumerated rights. The second one was rights that, that laws that had to do with the political process, we might give those careful scrutiny. And the final ones is laws that picked on discrete and insular minorities, we might give them. So these three paragraphs define the three exceptions to the presumption of constitutionality. So that footnote four became super, super important. But what people neglect when they study footnote four is what the court said in the text about the presumption of constitutionality. And that's what I want to rely on as to how this thing used to work. In the text of, the, of this, this, this case, the court affirmed that a statute would deny due process which precluded the, the disproof in judicial proceedings of all facts that would show or tend to show that a statute depriving a, lib, uh, a suitor of life, liberty, or property had a rational basis. Now, it's a very convoluted sentence. I'm not going to reread it. I'm not going to bother. I'll read you the next sentence in which he explains it farther. It's a little less convoluted. He said, where the existence of a rational basis for legislation whose constitutionality is attacked depends upon facts beyond the sphere of judicial notice, such facts may properly be made the subject of judicial inquiry. That's the key. Such facts may properly be made the subject of judicial inquiry, and the constitutionality of a statute predicated upon the existence of a particular state of facts may be challenged by showing to the court that the, those facts have ceased to exist. So it's basically saying, yes, it's a presumption of constitutionality, uh, but it can be rebutted. Challengers can come in and rebut the, the presumption by showing us how the law is not reasonable. It's not, uh, it's not rational. Um, that is no longer the law, but it was not changed by the New Deal Court, which is what Caroline Products was. It was changed by the Warren Court. In 1955, in another case that's not felt well known at all outside of law schools, and it's called Williamson v. Lee Optical. And it's the Williamson case, the Lee Optical case, that's responsible for the current approach to, quote, rational basis analysis, which basically is um, that the court will simply presume uh, that a law is rational if it can imagine a possible reason why a reasonable legislature might have passed it. Not that it's the reason why it was passed. And not that there's any evidence of the fact that this is true. Only that you can imagine a possible reason why a legislature might have passed it. That's good enough for the court. But, so that's why we have, that's the rule we operate under today. Unless you have an exception. That's the rule. That's the reason why economic regu regulations cannot normally be challenged in court, because that's the standard you go up against, as long as I can imagine a possible reason. And it's up to the court to imagine one, even if the government doesn't present one. Um, then we'll uphold that law. Um, but if you want to see how a realistic inquiry into this would look like, you don't look to the Supreme Court opinion in, Caroline, in, in Lee Optical. You look to the lower court opinion. Because it was in the lower court opinion where they found the law unconstitutional. And they did so by applying the presumption of constitutionality, but they were applying the rebuttable one. The one that you could go into court and show facts to show why the law is unreasonable. Well, so the, so the Lee Optical Company did this. So let me tell you a little bit about the lower court opinion and what the statute was about. 
The statute uh, was, a, was, a, was a statute that regulated um, eye, eye treatment, eye, you know, the, um, um, the ability of, uh, it banned opticians. In this particular case, it banned opticians from providing um, uh, certain uh, eyeglass uh, services such as replacement of broken lenses without going back to the doctor, the ophthalmologist, and getting your prescription. You can see how this got passed. The, uh, the optical company is one of these companies that comes in from out of state and they put together this, this business model in which they're going to sell you, they're going to advertise glasses and they're going to sell it to you at a cheap price. In fact, they, had, they operated exactly the way LensCrafters does today. They had, that was their business model. And it was outlawed in the state of Oklahoma. They banned the advertising. They banned uh, filling, uh, you know, giving you replacement glasses unless you went back to your doctor. They banned having a doctor on the premises. You had to go to the, you know, the, you, they couldn't hire their own doctors. They banned all of this stuff. This is what the Supreme Court upheld, but the lower court said it was all unconstitutional. So what did they do? They applied the presumption of constitutionality, but it allowed the Leoptical Company to go into court and show that this law was irrational and arbitrary uh, it was irrational arbitrary to prohibit opticians from providing the, some of the same services as ophthalmologists or optometrists. And the one, I, the one part, of, I'm not going to go through the entire um, analysis, but the one part of the analysis I particularly like is the one that talked about the broken lenses. So you break your lens. Um, or you want to buy a, a, a frames that have a different style, so you have to have a different shape lens. And so what do you do? He say, said, what, they said, what do you do when you go to an ophthalmologist? How do they handle it? Well, they take the, the, the lens that you've got, your old lens, they put it into a machine called the lensometer. And that's why I like it so much, because it's called the lensometer. How many people have heard of a lensometer? It's still used today. They're, it's still the term used by ophthalmologists today. It's lensometer. I, every time I get my eye exam, I say, have you heard of a lensometer? Oh, yeah, of course we heard of a lensometer. We use a lensometer, only now they're digital. They used to be, op they used to be mechanical. Um, but anyway, so, the, uh, and so I just love the word lensometer, and so that's why I, I like this part. And so you put it into a lensometer. He's, they said, look, when you go to the ophthalmologist, they give it to a lab tech. They give it to one of the people that works for them. They put it in the machine. It reads off the prescription, and then they go from there. The doctor doesn't do anything. So that's exactly what happens when you go to the optician. They give it to a lab tech. They put it in the machine. It reads. So there's no reason why you need to go back to a doctor when the optician does this very same thing. The doctor doesn't use his medical expertise, and neither do they. You don't need to, obviously. It's irrational. That's what made it irrational, and therefore is unconstitutional. That gets reversed on appeal by the Supreme Court. And, and uh, you have to have a hypothetical reason. So what Justice um, um, Douglas says is, well, maybe they might have thought that it was kind of good for public health to make you go back to see an eye doctor. Because then something good would happen when you did that. You know, you'd have to go back and have contact with your eye doctor and blah, blah, blah. I mean, so, that, so that's, that's what happened. So that's, that's what it was done. So that's what used to be done, even with the presumption of constitutionality. All right, so let me summarize where I am before I close up here, before I wrap up here. Here's the summary. Starting back with sovereignty, just so we get you back on the same page here. We all, we're all thinking of lensometers now, I know. All right, so because the, because the people are sovereign, in the absence of their express consent, there must be an assurance that laws restricting their liberties are within the proper power of legislatures to enact. Because they don't have our express, it's because they don't have our express consent that the laws passed have to be shown to be within their just powers. Laws that, and those just powers are the ones we can be presumed to have consented to, and we can't be presumed to have consented to laws that violate our fundamental rights. You got that? That's from the first part. 
Laws that irrationally or arbitrarily restrict the rights retained by the people are not within the legislative power because no rational person can be supposed to have consented to have their liberty arbitrarily restricted. Did you consent to having your liberty arbitrarily restricted? Do you consent to have your liberty arbitrarily? No, of course not. Nobody can rationally be supposed to have their liberty arbitrarily restricted, so that's not within their powers. Legislatures, third point, point three. Legislatures cannot be the judges in their own case when a citizen claims that a law restricting his or her liberty is irrational, arbitrary, or discriminatory, because we know that's why we left the state of nature. So the people are not the judges in their own case. The due process of law requires, therefore, each party, person, the opportunity to contest the rationality of restrictions on their liberty before an independent tribunal of justice. And finally, I'll just say for those of you who are the lawyers in the room, this view of due process is not the same thing as modern substantive due process because, and this is only for the lawyers in the room, the rest of you don't have to get this, but modern substantive due process kind of coming out of Caroline Product says it's only certain fundamental rights that we, the courts, recognize as fundamental will give them special attention. All other liberties, we won't. We treat it with rational basis. So this is not that approach. This is an approach that says all liberties get protected equally and not necessarily super duper hyper, you can never pass it scrutiny, but realistic scrutiny in which laws that are shown to be arbitrary or irrational in the way the lensometer thing was um, will be invalidated. Okay, after 40 years of writing and speaking about liberty and the Constitution, I've come now to realize that there are two radically opposed conceptions of the Constitution that have long been pitted against each other in a struggle in which neither has ever entirely prevailed. And this is really the theme of this new book. Now we can call these the Democratic Constitution and the Republican Constitution, but I don't intend these labels to be partisan. There are political conservatives who hew to some aspects of the Democratic Constitution and some progressives who adopt aspects of the Republican one. Still, I believe it is no accident that each political party has increasingly gravitated towards the conception of the Constitution that bears its name. And partly this has to do with where the Republican Party actually came from. The Democratic and Republican visions of the Constitution are based at root, at their heart and at their core, on differing conceptions of popular sovereignty. That's where it starts. The Democratic Constitution views sovereignty as residing as the people collectively, which means in a majority or supermajority of the people. Any principle or practice that gets in the way of majority rule is presumptively illegitimate and requires special justification. The Democratic Constitution is a living constitution whose meaning evolves to align with contemporary popular sentiments and modern views of democracy, so that today's majority is not bound by what's called the dead hand of the past. Under the democratic constitution, the only individual rights that matter are the product of majoritarian will. Whether the will of majorities in legislatures who create legal rights, what we call legal rights, or the will of supermajorities who ratified the Constitution and create constitutional rights. The reason why we have constitutional rights under this vision is because some supermajority said we do. So under the democratic Constitution, first comes government and then comes rights. Under the democratic Constitution, unelected judges who are not accountable to the majority are told that they must exercise their power of judicial review with restraint. They should defer 
to the will of the popularly elected branches by adopting a presumption of constitutionality I just told you about that simply presumes that legislatures have acted within their constitutional powers. And that, in turn, allows legislatures to claim that their laws are constitutional. Why? Because the courts will uphold them. Think about it. That's exactly how it works. I'm not exaggerating. This is the actual constitutional law. You go to court, you go to court, and you say what the courts are doing, what the Congress did is unconstitutional. And what the court says is we defer to Congress. We defer to Congress's judgment on whether what it was doing was constitutional. Judicial restraint. We defer. Then you walk across the street to Congress and you ask a congressman, is what you're doing constitutional? Courts are deferring to you. Is what you're doing constitutional? They go, yes, it is. You know why? The Supreme Court will uphold us. Just ask them. That's really, this is not, this is the actual law. So the Supreme Court's pointing over to Congress. Let, ask them about constitutionality. Congress goes, points over to the Supreme Court, says, ask them about constitutionality. Nobody actually talks about whether what they're doing is constitutional. This is the problem I call double deference. The doctrine of Deference and restraint, that's well known. The doctrine of presumption of constitutionally well known. I've made up the term double deference to refer to this finger pointing that goes on, which describes actual constitutional law, unless you are in one of those exceptional categories of fundamental rights where the court will do more. And so that's where all the fighting is. Are you in an exceptional category or not? Because otherwise the court will do nothing. So by employing this double deference shell game, which is what it is, constitutional limits on majoritarian power can be effectively nullified. And lately we even found that the Supreme Court will even change the meaning of a statute like the Affordable Care Act by adopting what it calls a saving construction to make it mean something other than what it meant so that it can avoid finding a statute unconstitutional and then uphold it. Now, in contrast with the Democratic Constitution, the Republican Constitution views sovereignty as residing in the people as individuals. Because the inalienable rights of these joint and equal sovereigns these joint and equal sovereign individuals precede the formation of government. First comes rights, and then comes government. Indeed, as the Declaration of Independence tells us, it is to secure these rights that governments are instituted among men. Under the Republican Constitution, because pe the people consists of each and every person, the power to govern must be delegated to some subset of the people. You, there's no way the people as a whole can govern. Only a subset can govern. We're realistic about that. And those subsets are to act as the servants of the sovereign people. They are servants. They sometimes call themselves that, but they don't act like it. <laughs> to ensure these servants remain within their just powers, however, under the Republican Constitution, this lawmaking power must itself be limited by law. The lawmaking power must be limited by law. Otherwise, the rights of the people will be violated. The Republican Constitution, then, provides the law that governs those who govern us. The Constitution doesn't govern us. The Constitution is the law that governs those who govern us. And each, and it's put in writing. It's put in writing so that it can be enforced against the servants of the people, each of whom must swear an oath to obey this Constitution. They all take the oath. They don't take the oath to obey the Constitution or the Constitution provided by the Supreme Court, but this Constitution, meaning the written one. 
And they can no more change the law that governs, those that govern, that, that, that governs them than we can change the speeding limits that govern us without going through the legislative process, or in their case, going through the amendment process. So they don't get to change the law that governs them any more than we do. In short, under the Republican Constitution, the meaning of the written Constitution must remain the same until it's properly changed. The meaning of this must remain the same until it's properly changed, and the only way it's properly changed under this Constitution is the amendment process specified in Article 5. And that's another way of saying that the Constitution must be interpreted according to its original meaning, which is the term that's used to describe what's today called originalism as a means of constitutional interpretation, as a method of constitutional interpretation. It's originalism. All originalism is is the proposition that the meaning of this must remain the same until it's properly changed. That's all it is. Under the Republican Constitution, judges too are the servants of the people. Remember, under the Democratic Constitution, there's this counter-majoritarian difficulty where you know, they're unelected, they're unaccountable. What gives them the right to do something, right? Under the Republican Constitution, judges are servants of the people who themselves have an, their own independent duty to adhere to the law of this Constitution above any statute enacted by Congress or the states. Judges are given lifetime tenure precisely so that they may hold legislatures within their proper scope of their powers. And by so doing, protect the individual rights retained by the people and the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And the conception of individual popular sovereignty also helps us better to understand what are the rights retained by the people, by the way. So let me kind of end with that. Let me talk about how, if we think of ourselves as sovereign, how that tells us what the rights retained by the people are. It's going to be interesting, I think. Under the, Republican, uh, just, uh, just under the Republican Constitution, the rights retained by the people resemble those enjoyed by sovereign monarchs. They're very similar. Just as sovereign monarchs claim jurisdiction over their territories, sovereign individual citizens have a jurisdiction over their private property. It's really the same thing, just smaller. Just as one monarch may not interfere with the territorial jurisdiction of other monarchs, no citizen may interfere with the person and property of any other. Just as monarchs may consensually alter their legal relations with other monarchs by entering into treaties, so too may individual citizens alter their legal relations with their fellow citizens and joint sovereigns by entering into contracts. That, so if you think of what the rights and powers of monarchs are, that's the rights and powers we have as the sovereign people. Of course, the Republican Constitution is also established in part so that these liberties of the individuals may be regulated by law. But the proper purpose of such regulations must always be the equal protection of the rights of each and every person. Any law that does not have this as its, proper pur as its purpose is beyond the just powers of a Republican legislature. In short, when the liberty of a fellow citizen and joint sovereign is restricted, judges as agents of the people have a judicial duty to critically assess whether the legislature has improperly exceeded its just powers. In this way, the Declaration's affirmation that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men can be reconciled with its claim that these just powers are derived from the consent of the governed. It's all consistent. If we are going to be realistic about this consent, then a government that lacks the express consent of each person is illegitimate unless it offers effective assurances that it is not exercising powers that violate the rights retained by the people. And a vital part of that assurance is that independent tribunals of justice will be provided um, uh, 
by, the, uh, by state and federal judiciaries who have a duty as agents of the sovereign people to scrutinize legislation that restricts the retained liberties of the people to assure that they are both necessary and proper. Thank you. Now, I know I worked you all pretty hard. Uh, I had to end up going off uh, my script a bit to explain a lot of these cases that, I, that you don't all know about, that, that, that are common knowledge to law students and law professors. And so it took me a little longer to go through this talk than I had originally planned. But we still have 16 minutes and 48 seconds um, for uh, comments or questions. Yes? Hi, I'm an amateur, and, uh, but I always enjoy your talks. Uh, uh, my source is Wikipedia, uh, which I love. Always reliable. Um, but my you can believe anything on my, the internet. My question is, as I read uh, the House uh, ju um, Judiciary Committee, and then there are a number of subcommittees, uh, uh, it's like crime and DEA, et cetera, et cetera, are supposedly subject to oversight with congressional hearings. Uh, are those ever done? And is, is that just a figment or a myth that that actually uh, occurs? Who is and if, if, if there is a congressional hearing, do they ever accomplish anything? Who, who is subject to congressional, who, who are you asking me about is subject to congressional hearings? Uh, my source or? No, no, I, don't, I just don't get the question. There are, uh, there uh, are committees, uh, uh, there are uh, hearings, and who's? Uh, it? The, the, uh, it's a committee in the House of Representatives, a committee on the judiciary. Yes, there's the Judiciary Committee, correct. And then there are some subcommittees. Of, they have subcommittees. Right, and they, uh, uh, as I read it, have oversight over all the, the different, uh, actually the, uh, the Supreme Court and the various elements of the government to, to look over and make sure that they're doing things properly and uh, okay. to discipline them and straighten them out uh, if they're not. My question is, uh, you know, I've read that, uh, you know, all of those what I read, uh, is there any credence to that and does, that, does anything, is that ever done and if so, is there any effect of it? The answer is there is credence to it. It is done. It does have effects. Um, what exactly each subcommittee or committee has jurisdiction over varies with the subcommittee. They all have, they are very protective of their jurisdictions, what they have oversight jurisdiction over. But basically, just for the rest of you, what this is just about is that Congress doesn't have any, quote, oversight powers. Congress has the power to, of the purse. Congress has the power to appropriate money. And in the course of appropriating money, it may oversee how that money is spent. And so therefore, it may oversee the operation of the other agencies of government, the other branches of government. It, quote, oversees them to assess whether their money is being spent right. And the threat is that if their money is not spent right, they'll be directed by, uh, by law to spend it right or their money will be cut back. And that's the source of the, quote, oversight powers. And to the extent that Congress exercises its power of the purse, this oversight can be important. What we're now facing now, I don't really want to get into a big side issue talking about this, but what we're now facing now is a situation where because the Democrats control the Senate, uh, the Republicans control the House, and the Senate, uh, and the Se and Senate Democratic leadership is adamant uh, in defense of presidential prerogatives that are going on now in the executive branch because of partisan alliance with the president. Um, it's eliminating the power of the purse as a means of Congress has to, to discipline the executive. 
And so there are oversight hearings that are held, but ultimately the threats are rather toothless because nothing that the House passes is being taken up by the Senate um, uh, in terms of spending bills. The House keeps passing spending bills, the Senate keeps not taking them up. And so that what ultimately happens is when crunch time comes, the way they, they're, the game they're now, this is another game. It's not like double deference, but it kind of is another game. They do the deference of the omnibus appropriations bill where they have to pass the funding for the entire federal government in one vote. And that means that you either have to accept everything that's in the omnibus bill or shut the government down. That's not the way the system ever worked before. The system worked before is each individual thing got appropriated. And so you could shut individual things down by not appropriating, but now it's all or nothing, and that's just a way of making it all. So that eliminates the constraint that used to be operative, and the only way to bring that back would be to reform the operation of the Senate and the House together so that they reassert their powers. It used to be you could count on the Congress being jealous about their own powers, even when their own president, even when their president of their party is in the other office, uh, you could count on them being so jealous of their own powers that they might protect themselves from encroachment. But now, uh, just because of the way the Senate is being run, um, uh, it has neutralized that. Yes, sir. That was uh, eloquent and, and persuasive, uh, as you usually are, uh, exegesis of the uh, get, getting the consent of the government from the language of uh, what some people meant by that uh, relevant clause, consent clause in the uh, Declaration of Independence. Uh, my, my question is how, uh, if at all, um, the, the argument can be made into a legal brief. I would call restoring the lost constitution a, uh, a long but, extent, but extensive and excellent and persuasive uh, legal brief. Uh, it's something you could actually present to a court uh, and come up with a presumption of liberty uh, under uh, existing laws. But, but of course, the Declaration of Independence is not technically part of American law. Is there a way you think you could get the uh, idea of the Republican Constitution as here defined into law the same and get the presumption of liberty uh, um, with a stronger uh, legal basis. The, just It was very strong, I thought, and persuasive in restoring the last Constitution. But this would make it even stronger if you could get it into the law. Right. But can that be done? Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, a multi-stage process. Fortunately, Academics can't come up with smart ideas and have them immediately imposed on the people. We would all be a lot worse off if academics had that power. So it's better that I don't have that power than all my lefty colleagues have that power, right? So you ha it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a major uh, stepping, uh, it involves different steps. At this step, what this argument is aimed at is essentially our side. Because our side, and I, by our side I mean loosely libertarians and, cons and constitutional conservatives, uh, who are interested in the Constitution but are politically conservative, um, they're divided. And they're precisely divided over this issue of popular sovereignty. There are many conservatives, and I think there are some libertarians, um, who have been taught that it's a collective notion of popular sovereignty and majority will, and et cetera, et cetera, and so judges being unelected and unaccountable, they should not be doing X. So we sort of need to get our own act in order, our own house in order. And it's only really coming together on the, uh, Things have been really, we, th I was sort of on the outside on this issue in these circles, because I run mostly in conservative circles, not in libertarian circles, because that's what's you know, going on. 
Um, and so I'm constantly talking to folks, and we, and you know, we were, I was really on the out. I was really kind of a, a dissenting uh, uh, voice in the wilderness. It's not true anymore. If anything, the view that I've represented is sort of the up-and-coming, ongoing, perhaps majority view um, I amongst conservative and libertarian legal uh, uh, circles. At any rate, this is to try to get us all on the same page. And the reason why I want to write this book as a short, popular book is because I'd like to get it out um, uh, in public before the next round of presidential elections so that Republican candidates um, can um, sort of get a little primer on what a Republican Constitution looks like. I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that it would be called Republican because uh, there are aspects of this found in the origins of the Republican Party as an anti-slavery party, which in some respects perfected the original Constitution from one of its most glaring defects, uh, its unrepublican defect. Uh, which was slavery, and, why, and, how, and, the, and the constitutional theory that was used to uphold slavery. At any rate, um, uh, I, I, that's the way I have to do it. We have to do it. We it would be very good if, our, if whoever is running for president next time is an articulate spokesperson for this view, and the reason is is because it's the president that nominates the judges, and then it would be a Republican Senate which confirms, but they would presumptively confirm whoever the president nominates if they're the same party, and you have to have a president who's willing to nominate judges who hold this view. And in fact, the Bush administration screened out potential judges who held this view. I mean, it wasn't articulated this way, but anybody who had those instincts, if that came out during the internal interviews of those persons, those persons would not be nominated because they held the more majoritarian view that was held by many conservative uh, legal people. To the extent we turn the corner that way, the next round of judges, if, an, if the next president is committed to that, will be different. And that is how our judiciary changes in our system. I'm describing the way judges get picked. They get nominated by a politically elected president. They get confirmed by a politically elected Senate. That's how we pick them. And so they have to be committed to that. And it's got to be publicly uh, 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 acceptable. And this is the way of making that happen. Um, I can tell you that Senator Paul, for example, uh, when he was doing his filibuster on, the, on drone policy, he, he, before I ever met the man, um, he quoted from Restoring Law's Constitution and advocated a presumption of liberty on the floor of the Senate. Uh, so I know he's with us uh, on this particular subject. I don't know about the other candidates yet. Um, but that's something we need to be looking for, to see what, what is their view on judicial role in a constitutional republic? And do they see the difference between a republic and a democracy and are willing to fight and articulate the difference? Not just believe it, but to be able to articulate it uh, forcefully because they're going to be attacked for it. So they've got to be able to defend themselves. We've had a series of candidates who can't defend themselves. Even when they're right, they can't defend themselves. We need one that can defend themselves. And so that's what we need to be looking for next time around if we want things to change. Yes. Thank you, uh, Randy. Uh, two questions, somewhat unrelated, but both relating to the dynamics of the Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. Uh, first question is, do you have an opinion, I'm, I'm sure you do, uh, on whether or not it was a mistake, I'm not trying to be finger-pointing, to have the federal judiciary appointed for life as opposed to term limits? Um, Okay, question number one. What's question number two? I've got to go quickly number, here. Question number two is that the Supreme Court, in many of its recent decisions and not so recent decisions, seems to consider issues like what's good for the country, whether the country is ready for a policy, i.e., they assume the role of policymakers. Am I being reading too much into these decisions? Aren't they quite off base? And what's the relevance of that issue when they're supposed to be simply analyzing issues on the basis of constitutionality. Okay, 
Um, actually, you know what? I, I, I got so hung up on the What was the first question again? Uh, term, <laughs> limits for, term limits for the Fed term, Yeah, uh, I'm not in favor of term limits. Uh, you know, I know Mark Levin likes the idea. I'm not in favor of term limits, limits for the judiciary. The problem we have with the judiciary is, is the second part of your problem. They're too majoritarian right now. They're too, it's not so much that they're policymakers, as they just go along with what the conventional politics are, which go, means going along with Congress. And so that's what they're, they're, and so anything that made them more that way uh, is bad. And I think if they're, if they're uh, subject to replacement, um, um, uh, then I think that's bad. But I think it's a judgment call. It's like foreign policy. It's not something that first principles tells us how to do. Um, uh, and so I can see arguments on the other side, uh, but on, the, on balance, I'm skeptical of term limits. I, I think the independent, it would, do, it would, it would not, um, um, it would weaken the independence of the judiciary, and it's, and it's too weak as it is. That's my view. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm not clear, but you can help me. When we uh, swear to support the Constitution, uh, we're actually swearing to support one of two constitutions, and therefore we don't, we don't have a constitution. Is that the essence of your, of your point, that constitutions depend upon the people who are in power and the Congress, not upon the written word of the Constitution. It's a really good question. I'm trying to figure out how I can answer it succinctly and, and responsively. Um, and I would say this, because there are these two fu fundamentally different and opposed conceptions of the Constitution that go all the way back to the founding, people will try to read the written Constitution to fit their model of what's right. And so they'll try to read the Constitution to be as democratic as they can read it to be, or they get away with being, um, as opposed to Republican and vice versa. And what's happened over a period of 200 years is that most of the clauses in the Constitution that were really Republican and they were not Democratic have been eliminated by judicial interpretation and construction. Um, and that's what I call the lost Constitution. That's what the title of my book is about, Restoring the Lost Constitution. It's not some bygone era of great constitutional law made by the Supreme Court. It is the clauses of the Constitution, like the Ninth Amendment, the Privilege of Immunities Clause, the Commerce Clause, the Second Amendment until recently, the Contracts Clause, the Republican Guarantee Clause. These clauses of the Constitution that are gone from the Constitution because they got in the way of the democratic conception of the Constitution. So it goes to how the written Constitution has been construed. But because it's in writing, because it's in writing, we still have a shot at bringing it back because they didn't repeal it. And so it's, it's not being enforced, but it's still there and we can pick it up and we can show it to them and we can embarrass them. And that was the virtue of putting it in writing. We invented this here putting it in writing like this. And this is where it comes in handy. Last question. Uh, well, first, I just want to say thank you for the wonderful talk. I enjoy reading the Volo Conspiracy, and I especially enjoy your posts. Um, oh, by the way, I, I, I blog on the Volo Conspiracy, V-O-L-O-K-H. I don't do it as often as I like, but I tweet quite regularly now. And so if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Randy E. Barnett uh, on Twitter. So, and I'm tweeting you know, most of the day. Or like, I mean, at some part during the day, I usually throw a tweet up there. So go ahead, yes. Um, well, you were talking about sort of the different conceptions of uh, uh, consent of the governed and all that, and uh, as you've touched on, there's a very strong uh, conservative impulse for judicial restraint in certain circles, and you seem to think that's changing to some extent. Um, 
what are the best ways in which, you know, I, outside of academia, that, that can really be delivered in an articulate way to persuade some other people on the right who have long held this type of thing? I'm, it's the book I'm trying to write. That, and that's the short answer. That's what I'm doing. And then you, and once it comes out, if it comes out, I mean, it hasn't been written yet, so I can't promise you when it'll be done. Um, you know, it's going to be like one of these 120-page books you can hand to people. And so that's the only way. That, you, let, let, you have to make the argument, and I think we can make the argument. Before, before I end, I've got a minute and 20 seconds. Before I end, I want to say a word about, <laughs> I, 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 I want to say a word about how I got to be a libertarian in the first place. I got to be a libertarian, because it goes to what you can do in your everyday life. I got to be a libertarian in the first place because a classmate of mine uh, as an undergraduate, came, we were both conservatives and she was active in the Young Americans for Freedom and she came back from the Young Americans for Freedom meeting and other things. She had heard about this libertarianism stuff and so she came to me and she came to talk to me and tell me what libertarianism was. And my reaction to this was, um, I don't want to hear about this. And, and I refused to hear about it. And, and I think, in my, and the only thing I can remember about why I refused to hear about it, because I thought the word libertarian sounded weird. And I didn't want to hear any more about it. So she being a good friend of mine, uh, she went away and she didn't really bother me with this anymore. But you know, the other thing she actually did that allowed me to be where I am today is she helped me on all, we were philosophy majors together at Northwestern, so she helped me study for all the exams. I was not such a good student. And if it hadn't been for her helping me on the exams, I don't know that I actually would have gotten where I am. But then later, we lived in a residential college, and she brought in this professor to speak on libertarianism named John Cody. And I went to this talk because I had to go, and, it was, it was, and so I went to the talk. And I thought, wow, this, this is really a revelation. This is like rational conservatism. This is like so cool. And so I got into a not, but I don't agree with him about X, Y, and Z. And I got into about a nine-month debate with this guy about libertarianism until I finally thought, well, wait a second. Maybe he's right, and maybe I'm wrong about all this stuff. And it was from there I became a libertarian. And by the senior year of college, I taught an accredited course at Northwestern on libertarianism in our residential college uh, that he was the faculty sponsor for. And then I wrote a letter to Murray Rothbard, and that's how I got connected with the libertarian movement, et cetera, et cetera. Well, anyway, that's, you know, so one person really made a difference. And this was this classmate of mine, Jeanette uh, DeWise, now Jeanette DeWise Wolf. She went on after uh, school to be a journalist here in San Diego uh, as a reporter for the San Diego Reader. Um, and she's here today. So I want to introduce her, Jeanette DeWise Wolf. You stand up, Jeanette. So if you, if you like what I'm doing on behalf of liberty, if you think I'm doing anything good and valuable on behalf of liberty, you really have Jeanette to thank for that, honestly. Uh, and it just goes to show what each one of you can accomplish, perhaps without even knowing it, to advance liberty in your own life. Thanks.